today we come back to Luke, Luke chapter 17, 1 to 19. We've seen that Luke is the author, he's the author of this book. He's a traveling companion to the Apostle Paul. Uh, He's writing to this guy by the name of Theophilus and by extension to us uh, in order that we might have certainty regarding the things that we have been taught about Jesus, about his king, about him being king and about his kingdom that's coming in. We've been considering in recent weeks how the Pharisees, these kind of religious leaders of their society, how these leaders have been twisting scripture and profiting off of their position for their own personal gain. We've been seeing how people can twist things in order to use God, to use people, to use money for their own personal vein. So it's within that vein that we come now to Luke chapter 17. In light of those things that have been going on, we then pick up the next thing here in Luke chapter 17, verse 1. Here's what it says. God's word. And he said to his disciples, this is Jesus, temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now notice there that Jesus has turned his attention to his disciples. You see that there in verse 1? His followers. And here in these four verses, I count seven things that he teaches about this community of the kingdom. Seven things that he's teaching about the community of the kingdom of God. Here's the first. The first one is temptation. You see there in verse 1? Temptation. Temptations, Jesus says, are sure to come. When we wake up every day, we don't have to wonder whether or not we are going to be tempted to sin. It's going to happen every day. Jesus says it's sure to happen. And so as sure as uh, a light switch turning something on or off, as sure as stepping on the ground and knowing that it's going to hold us up, as sure as the sun will come up tomorrow. So Jesus tells us we can be sure that there's going to be temptation to sin. And so Uh, To be tempted means to be enticed, to be wooed, to be tantalized towards disobedience. So every time I walk in the grocery store and I walk by that end cap with all the Little Debbies on it, because I love Little Debbies, but I don't need to eat Little Debbies at 45, I am tempted to go and buy the oatmeal cream pies for $1.89 and get 12 of those things. It's amazing. I think it's 12. It's been so long, I've forgotten I bought them myself. Now, to be clear, eating Little Debbie's, of course, is not simple, but you get the idea. That draw, that wooing when you walk by it, that want, that desire that bubbles up within us, that's that temptation that Jesus is referencing. That enticement to sin, he says, is going to be present every single day. And so I wonder how many of us, I wonder how many of us, or I wonder how much we have been tempted just this morning. How many times have we been tempted to sin just this day since we've been awake? See, Satan and marketers would love to have you be convinced that temptation or life in particular is largely neutral. There's not much really going on. 
Satan and marketers know our hearts maybe better than we do. Every single marketing ad, for instance, is tempting you to follow them, to be discontent with this thing and buy their thing, to watch their movie, to follow their ways, playing upon our desires. Because they know this reality, like the harlot that stands on the street corner, enticing you to come, to leave righteousness and come on over to death. Of course, they don't pitch it that way. But the more that we are attentive to the reality of temptation, the more we'll be quick to put on that armor of God every single day. But that leads us to the second thing that Jesus teaches here. That is transgression. So we have temptation, transgression. Transgression means to sin. To sin means to rebel against God's law, uh, to rebel against Jesus, our love, our heavenly husband. And here we see Jesus uses the language of sin four times. Do you see it in there? And there's four verses. Four times he uses it. Now, all temptation does not lead to sin. Don't lose sight of that. All all temptation does not lead to sin. But all sin is preceded by temptation. And so temptation then is that kind of highway, that kind of on-ramp, I should say, on-ramp to the highway of sin. Sin or transgression happens when someone gives into that temptation to act upon uh, those sinful desires. James says it like this in James 1, 14 to 15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then the desire, listen, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, what does it do, James? It leads to death, he says. And notice in that verse from James, the temptation, did you see that? It comes from our own desire. James says right before that, that God does not tempt us, but it comes from within. And so Jesus is saying, temptation to sin is gonna be around. Transgression is what happens when we actually participate in that temptation. And that then leads to the third thing that Jesus teaches here, condemnation. Condemnation. We might might say greater condemnation. Look at verse 1 again. Jesus says temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. In other words, participating in sin individually is bad enough, right? But when sin passes through someone and then they cause someone else to sin, the little ones he references there, Jesus says that's even worse. In verse two, he goes on to say that if our sin causes someone else to sin, it would have been better for them to have taken a boat, drive out into the middle of Atlantic Ocean, take a big old rock, a millstone, tie it around your neck and throw over, be thrown over the side of a boat and drop to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Imagine the experience of that. Jesus is playing upon our imaginations to help us understand the gravity of what exponential sin does. It'd be better to do that, to jump off the side of a boat with a rock on you, than to cause someone else to sin with our actions, with our attitudes. So again, here Jesus is condemning exponential growth, multiplication of sin. And so Jesus came to put sin to death, right? That's why he came. Therefore, he is helping us see the severity of it all. He's trying to warn us to keep it from spreading. Let me just stop and think about this for a second. So this is a really easy uh, uh, illustration, isn't it? This time of COVID. 
If I had COVID, and I knew I had COVID, and I said, why don't all of you guys come over to my house? And then I just sort of went up to you, and I sort of coughed on every one of you knowingly. And I, I took my COVID, and I pushed it on to you in that dinner party. You would rightfully condemn me because I took something that was mine, and I intentionally passed it on to you. And Jesus is saying that, that we think that way because... That's the way it ought to be. That's the way that it should be. Namely, that we shouldn't be passing our sin on to others because then it just begins to extrapolate out and out and further out and begins to affect the kingdom in ways, affect the community in ways that it shouldn't. And so for us to multiply our sinful choices to others is to spread a deadly virus through the community. And therefore, Jesus says, woe to ones like that. Woe. Woe or cursed. So, my family and I have been reading through the book of Numbers uh, uh, in our family devotions. It's a strange book to read uh, in family devotionals. Sometimes they say things that you kind of have to explain on the spot that are not easy. But we were reading just this past week in, in Numbers where this guy was intentionally sinning and that he was causing other people to sin and the Lord says to put him to death. If you're anything like me, I read that and I cringe a little bit, right? Ew, that seems really severe. But thanks be to God, we, don't, we do not live underneath the old covenant. We live in a better covenant, the Bible says, the new, new covenant, wherein we don't have to do those kinds of things. But the principle is the same. Jesus is consistent here. Namely, that when we see sin sort of starting to extrapolate out into the life of the community, infecting it all, he wants it to stop. We might say, the Lord wants us to quarantine sin. Right? Keep it from passing on that more death would not be passed on to the community. And so for us, what might, might, what might that look like, you ask? All right, how would we know that this is happening? How would we know that, you know, that we are, our sin is being passed on to others? What are some things that might, might happen that may indicate that? Well, for instance, uh, we might gossip about a fellow church member or a family member, enticing them to then participate in that gossip. Uh, we might invite someone over to watch a movie that you know is going to entice people to objectify women. We might uh, wear something that would intentionally, knowingly entice other people towards sin. Uh, we might serve alcohol to someone that we know struggles with drunkenness. We might gamble when someone we know is uh, tempted towards gambling in ways that are wrong. Or we might talk about someone or something that you know is going to encourage them towards unbiblical anger or slander. And we can even think, we, we tend to define sin individually, right? That's where we live in America. That's sort of how we go. We always think individual. But sin can also be corporate, right? We think about churches that maybe teach or encourage false doctrine. We teach about those that, churches that coddle abusers. Uh, and so it's not just individual. We could have kinds of sin such that it pervades out into the life of the community of the church. And Jesus says doing these things disobeys a love for God, and it especially disobeys a love for each other or for our neighbor. And that then leads us to what comes next. So we have temptation that gives birth to transgression. When passed on to others is greater condemnation. Therefore, fourthly, Jesus teaches us here in verse three, pay attention. Pay attention to yourselves. You see it there in verse three? Pay attention. Jesus sees multiplied rebellion against God as worse than horrific de death. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't always see it that way. 
I can turn on a movie, I can participate in gossip or slander and think, well, you know, that didn't really hurt anybody. It's not a big deal. In other words, I can minimize sin because while I know that it's wrong, it doesn't appear to be a big deal, right? But if we take Jesus at his word, we we have to agree that leading others into sin is worse than passing the coronavirus on to others. And I think it's good for us to acknowledge that we, that I, don't always think that way. And so thanks be to God for his word that puts this right up in front of us in the morning. This is the beauty of consecutive exposition, just walking right through the text. It forces us to deal with things we wouldn't otherwise deal with. And so brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, listen, we've got to pay attention to ourselves. Pay attention. That's what Jesus says. We have to watch ourselves. We've got to watch, as Paul says, watch our lives and our doctrine. So on Thursday, when I began working on this sermon, I I tried to rehearse before 9 a.m., the amount of things that I was tempted by that morning. And I was thinking, all right, had I given in to those things, as I kind of rehearsed the the amount of things that I I was tempted by that morning, I started thinking, if I would have participated in them, how it would have then moved on to my wife and to my children and eventually to you, and even by extension, this beautiful community we live in. And I was surprised at the amount of temptation I had just in a couple hours of being awake. And I was further surprised how if I had given in to that, I would have, like I mentioned, passed it on. And yet I'm oftentimes not careful, not attentive to those temptations. And yet I'm also, at the same time, very attentive of other things that I might do that are wrong. So for instance, I'm very attentive to putting on my mask. I'm very attentive to washing my hands. I'm very attentive to keeping my distance from others so as to not pass along danger onto you. But are we as attentive to the ways in which we might be tempted and how that might pass on to others? Are we doing the hard work of paying attention to ourselves as as to whether or not we're participating sin or passing sin on to others? Well, Restoration Church, we must. We must. If we are going to love God and love our neighbors, uh, be good community neighbors of this community, if we are going to enter into the joy of our Father, we must be vigilant in assessing our thoughts and our actions and our attitudes. Soldiers will tell you that when, they're, when you're in the midst of war, the people that are most in danger, the soldiers that are most in danger are the ones that are in the trenches and they stop paying attention to the enemy. They get comfortable. Soldiers will tell you they're the easiest ones to pick off. And so in the same way, we can be picked off in the same way. We, we're reminded of 1 Peter 5, right, that says the devil prowls around us seeking to devour us. Therefore, we must pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention, Restoration Church. I've, I've seen, when I don't pay attention, I've seen how it's gotten in on me. I've seen it happen in my own life. I've seen it happen in a number of you. This church has watched, sadly, one of our own not pay attention and get sucked into death. Jen Wilkin has said that we will not wake up 10 years from now and find that we have passively taken on the character of God. We must pay attention. And so towards that end, take on the character of God. And might I say a special call of attention to how we use our phones. All right, those wonderful things that have so much potential for good and so much potential for evil. So pay attention to how you use your phones. Pay attention to the amount uh, of use that you have towards your phones. Pay attention to where you use your phones. Because again, 
There's great potential for good with our phones, but there's great potential for evil. And I have experienced in my personal life and walking with others, that phone is oftentimes a nice little vessel that carry, people carry around in their pocket that encourages death. So be careful how you use those. An old saint says that we must be killing sin or it will be killing us. And so we have temptation towards sin. We have transgression when we participate in it. We have greater condemnation when we pass it on. We therefore, fourthly, must pay attention. And then fifthly, we must give admonition. Give admonition. So we not only pay attention to ourselves, but guys, we also, we also got to pay attention to each other. In the community, we gotta, that's part of the kind of quarantining sin, right? Jesus moves from the personal to the corporate in verse three. Take a look at verse three. Pay attention to yourselves, and then he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And so to admonish is to rebuke. To rebuke is to love someone fiercely by calling them away from sin and death. So I rebuke my sons, don't I? Like if they get too close to a cliff, that's good for me. So in the same way, when I see brothers and sisters in Christ playing with fire, I love them by saying, no, walk away. You know, those kinds of things. And if we don't do that, if we don't do that work of calling each other and encouraging each other and admonishing each other, if we don't do this, then we don't love God. We don't love our community. We don't display the beauty of the kingdom, the purity of the kingdom. I think about this, members of Restoration Church, those of you soon to join, Lord willing, at next Sunday night's members meeting at 6.30. We have covenanted, haven't we agreed that we would walk together in brotherly love, exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully, here it is, admonishing and entreating one another as occasion may require. That's what we said we would do. And we said we'd do that because Jesus calls us to that. And so rebuke or admonishment when used to speak, we've got to recognize that as we do this work, that admonishment to things that are not in the cultural norm, that's going to be seen as not loving. Got to be aware of that. But we've got to keep our eyes on the truth. The reality is when we admonish people on all sin, but especially those that are not uh, really accepted in our day, to admonish people when we see them passing sin on to others or imbibing in sin. It's a way to love them. It's a good thing. It's a life-giving thing. To do otherwise, to just let people go because it's sort of too uncomfortable or, or you don't want to be sort of cut off in some way, to, to not call them, to not admonish them is to let them go down a road that has a broken down bridge at the end of it, just letting them go right into the valley. We love them by saying, no, don't go down this road. Turn around. Don't do this. And so temptation, friends, is present. Transgression is birthed for those that give in to that temptation. Greater condemnation to those that pass it on to others. Therefore, we must pay attention and we must give admonition or rebuke to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And by the way, you'll notice all of this assumes that you are a meaningful part of a community. And then there's the last two. Repentance and forgiveness. Sorry, I couldn't make the shun sound. I tried for the last two. So repentance and forgiveness. There's two there. I'm kind of putting these two together. Repentance and forgiveness. Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Have you noticed, by the way, that we've talked a lot about repentance in the last few weeks? 
That just shows how often it's coming up in Jesus' in, in ministry. And yet it does seem sometimes rare in other pulpits to not talk about repentance because it doesn't seem loving. And yet Jesus is constantly calling us to call each other to faith and repentance, speaking the truth in love to one another. Jesus is trying to love these disciples, trying to love us by helping us understand the danger of the cancer that can get into a community and affect it and bring us towards death. And so that's why we have things like, for instance, restorative church discipline that Jesus teaches in Matthew 18, which we could say he really is teaching right here. We've got to be vigilant to keep that sin out. And if it gets in, we love people by admonishing them and calling them to repentance, Jesus says. And that, by the way, that's what church discipline's doing. It's calling people to repentance. It's calling them, go out of death, come towards life. We saw this, this notion of repentance. We saw it in the prodigal, didn't we, in Luke 15 a few weeks ago. Jesus, remember, saw repentance as beautiful, as beautiful. Jesus sees repentance as a call to come home. It's a call to joy, to life, to peace. You remember what Jesus said? There's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 that do not need repentance. Repentance is coming home to the father as the younger sin son did. Repentance is turning away from the sin and it's turning around and coming home to Christ, our love. It's acknowledging, repentance is acknowledging with specificity our wrong. And like him, we are grieved for the pain that we've caused the father and others. We name our sin. We ask him then to forgive us. And so if temptation can serve as the on-ramp to sin, repentance, beloved, is the on-ramp to joy and forgiveness. The on-ramp to life, love for God, love for each other. When we repent, that is, when we turn around from the way we've been living in the far country and we come home, we come home to the Father and we say again, we're sorry for what we've done or left undone. We say that we are sorry to those we've hurt or sinned against. Do you see the two things there? Did y'all, hear that? Did y'all catch that? We say to God that we're sorry and then we say to the ones we've hurt that we're sorry. And we then walk, we then love, we then live differently. That's when confession turns into repentance, right? When confession turns into repentance is when we confess the sin, but the repentance is the loving and the living differently. And then when we do that, when we repent, we confess, we love, we live differently, we then ask for forgiveness. We talk about this in premarital counseling all the time, don't we? Forgiveness, ask, we have to give the power of forgiveness to the one we offended. We can't steal that power. We can't keep that power from them and say, I'm sorry for what I've done and never ask forgiveness. When you, for forgiveness to come, you've got to ask the person you offended, will you forgive me? And let them be the one to forgive us. And that is when we ask for forgiveness, we are asking for God and for the person that we've sinned against. We're asking for them to clear the debt that we owe them because of our sin. That's what forgiveness is. We're asking them to clear the debt that we owe them as a result of our sin. And then God will forgive us. (laughs) And we who are in Christ and have been sinned against, notice the word there in verse four. We too, circle this word, must forgive them. Why? You should be asking that. Why must we forgive them? Because, friends, This is exactly what Christ has done for us. He's loved us and gave his life for us. 
to take away our sin, to forgive us. Christ has come, and he was perfectly sinless. He did no wrong, and yet he was tempted in every way, yet we yet was without sin. And he took our condemnation. You heard Joey read that earlier. He took our condemnation on the cross, all of them, past, present, future. He overcame them there on the cross. That's why we hold up a cross, because that's our pathway to freedom, to forgiveness. And he overcame it. We know that that was received because resurrection three days later. So therefore, Christ has forgiven us of all of our sins. And therefore, those of us that are in Christ, that we've repented, we've trusted him to forgive us, therefore, we must then forgive them, people that have sinned against us. Paul says later, forgive as you have been forgiven. Now, we who know this gospel, we must love and forgive as we have been forgiven. And when we do this work of forgiveness to those that repented, when we do that, it's a demonstration of our salvation. Therefore, that means if we don't forgive, we withhold forgiveness. We show ourselves that we don't understand the gospel. And Jesus says, therefore, if you will not forgive, you will not inherit the kingdom because it indicates you don't understand the gospel. But when we forgive, when we love God and we love our neighbor by forgiving, we manifest the beauty of the kingdom, the generosity of the kingdom, beauty of the kingdom repentance and forgiveness right as christians this is our calling card repentance and forgiveness this is our calling card this is this explains this is what we explains all that we do as christians because we've been forgiven we therefore can forgive others and this by the way also explains this notion of uh, repenting and forgiving this also explains what comes next in verses 7 to 10 i skipped over 5 and 6 i'm going to come back to that but there's this call to forgive others Verses 7 to 10 explains that call is explained in this passage. Take a look. Verses 7 to 10. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Implication there, Jesus wants us to see is no. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our, here's the word, duty. We've only done what is our duty. So we are unworthy. Christians are unworthy servants. We've done nothing to deserve the kingdom. We are unworthy servants of the most high God. We are citizens of his kingdom by his grace. Jesus gave his blood that we might become his citizens. We are unworthy servants. Jesus paid not some, but all for the sins of those that trust him. Therefore, we then are unworthy servants, but joy-filled servants, right, of Christ. Therefore, as he has served us in forgiveness, it is our, look at the word, it's our duty to serve others in forgiveness. That's what that verses 7 to 10 is doing. It's our duty. Now, listen, when I say the word duty, most of you, th that word sounds like, it sounds like something I don't really want to do, but I'll do it. That's the way we often use the word duty. But duty could also mean something else. Duty can also mean joyful participation. Right? It's my duty to love my wife. 
You know what I mean? Right? It's our duty. It's, it's, it's my duty to preach to you the word every week. It's not something I get up every week and I'm like, oh, I got to go preach Winston the word today. No, it's my duty. It's my joyful duty to do that. It's my duty to teach my sons how to be men. And so Jesus is saying, we are gracious servants. We are the kind of waiters and waitresses at the restaurant of the world. People don't come into the restaurant and say to the waiter, listen, you sit down, let me serve you. You eat first, right? When you show up to the, you know, whatever restaurant it is you like to go to, you don't show up to that restaurant and go to the waiter, like you sit down. No, what you expect is, is you're going to be the one that sits down and the waiter's going to serve you, right? That's the idea. And so it is our duty uh, to then what Jesus is saying in this passage is in the same way, people come into our lives and because of Christ's love for us, we then love them in the way of forgiveness. It's our duty to do so. And when they do, when they confess their sins, when they live and love a different way, requesting you to remove their guilt, it's our duty to forgive them. It's our joy to forgive them because that's how Jesus forgave us. That's how we see others come back home to God. And isn't that what we want? We want people to come home to God, to be healed. We need to ask the question, though, is forgiveness hard? Yeah, it's hard. Forgiveness is very hard. It's one of the hardest things, I believe, forgiveness is one of the hardest things that we will do as Christians. I asked a few people that I met with this week, rank the top five hardest things in the Christian life. I would put forgiveness easily in that list. Forgiveness is hard, but it's a joyful duty to show people Jesus. So it's our duty to forgive as we have been forgiven. And now there should be one part of you right now that's a little anxious. Y'all feeling that? This sort of call to forgive people? Y'all feeling that a little bit going, Nathan, that, do you know what's been done to me? You feeling that? Well, guess who also felt that? The disciples. If you feel like right now, like this notion of this call that Jesus has called, this kind of community, these seven things, doing this stuff, repenting, forgiving, all this stuff is hard. It seems impossible. Guess what? It is. <laughs> Apart from Christ, it is impossible. Take a look at what comes next. Look at verse five. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you would... You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So the apostles hear this call of these seven things, repenting, temptation, all this stuff, repenting, forgiving, this call to a holy life, this community of the kingdom, this paying attention, this calling one another. And they especially heard that part. Did you catch it? When Jesus said, if they turn to you seven times in a day and repent, you must repent. They hear that and they say, increase our faith they're going i can't do that and we say what amen to that point right increase our faith. i can't do that these guys are getting it i wonder if you were getting it walk through that do you feel the weight of how difficult that life together is but i want you to notice in verse five and six did you see that jesus kind of corrects their request he says, in essence, Jesus says, in essence, it's not the size of your faith that counts. It's the object of your faith that counts. Not the size, it's the object. See, there's two ways to think about faith. 
There's the object of our faith and the experience of the object of our faith. So if I'm flying on an airplane, right, I have faith in the pilots. I was hoping one would fly by. He's not there. But if I, have, if I go on an airplane, I have faith in the pilots in the plane to get me where I want to go. Faith in the pilots in the plane to get me where I want to go. But when I'm on that plane, my experience of my faith can go up and down, right? Turbulence hits, my faith, ah, can these guys get us through this? Can the plane get us through this? I'm experiencing, my experience of my faith is sort of being going up and down. But the object has never changed. The pilots in the plane are still there. They've never changed. It's my experience of it. Object never changes. See, Jesus here, friends, is moving their understanding away from the experience of their faith, and he wants them to focus on the object of their faith. Beloved, you don't need more or less faith. You need to look at the object of your faith. Just a tiny seed of faith, just a tiny amount of trust in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's a tiny amount of trust in the one that created all things and holds all things together. That's gonna be enough. When your faith, when your faith is in Jesus, when your faith is in Jesus, not in your experience of Jesus, but Jesus himself, the person that never changes. When your faith is in him, Jesus himself, when you trust Jesus, then you can take that elm tree right there, you can pick it up and go plant it in the Gulf of Mexico. Because Jesus is strong. Stronger than the strongest man. Your faith is in him. And so church family, trying to do this work of fighting temptation, calling one another to obedience is not just hard. It's impossible without Christ. But if we trust him, day after day, if we trust him, not ourselves, but trust, trust Christ in us, we can trust Jesus to change things and compel us towards God and neighbor. We can t trust him to give us the power of forgiveness to do it, including forgiving people 70 times, seven times, numerous times in a day if we have to. Iron strength can't do it. In him, can. And so don't focus your on your experience of the faith. Focus on the object of your faith. Pay attention to yourselves. Listen to this. I was asked the question this week, how much should we focus on our sin? Pay attention to that. How much should we focus on Jesus? When you focus on Jesus, everything else is gonna fall into place. Focus on the power and the glory of Christ. Through his spirit, he will equip you to do the hard work of forgiveness. And quickly, let me kind of a little paragraph, a little parenthetical statement here. As we think about forgiveness, forgiveness is not saying what somebody did was okay. Forgiveness is not saying what somebody did is okay. And secondly, forgiveness is not forgetting. In other words, consequences to sin and forgiveness are two separate things. Consequences to someone's sin, especially egregious or perpetual sin, is different than forgiving someone. You can still forgive someone and then give them consequences in light of the fact of what they've done to you. You can still forgive them and still have consequences to what they've done. But regardless, in the hard work of living a holy life, we must pay attention to the object of our faith that can empower us to repent and forgive one another. And lastly, briefly, where do we look to Jesus? How is it we look to Jesus to get that power, to live in this beautiful community of redemptive love? How do we, how do we look at him? How do we get strengthened to do this? Well, look at this final story that Jesus gives. Verse 11 to 19. 
On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at the distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. In other words, not a Jew. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. That word for well there is actually saved. It's better rendered saved. Your faith has saved you. So I'm out of time, but let me just say this. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are the 10 lepers in this story. We are the 10 lepers in the story. We have been called out to Jesus. We have all, haven't we, called out to Jesus to heal not just our bodies, but our souls, haven't we? And we found healing, haven't we? We found forgiveness in him. Not just in our bodies, more so, you know, in the resurrection, we'll have that in our bodies, but our souls, we found forgiveness. We have all sinned. Nathan Knight has sinned. And in faith, we went to the priest, didn't we? And on our way to the priest, what did we find? Again, we were forgiven. We were cleansed. We were healed. Hallelujah. The question is, beloved, the question is for all of us, are we like this Gentile Samaritan? Or are we like the nine? Which one is it? Are we like the Gentile Samaritan or are we like the other nine? Do we daily, daily, especially amidst temptations, do we daily, regularly, do we go to Jesus? Do we fall on our face at his feet and thank him for what he's done? Do we give him praise every day? Paul says in Colossians 4.2, devote, note that word, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful, and catch this third one, and being thankful. Devote yourselves to prayer, to being watchful, and to being thankful. Are we devoted to prayer? Are we devoted to being watchful? Are we devoted to being thankful for Christ and what he's done? Because again, Christ was tempted as we are, yet was without sin. He willingly, freely gave his life for us that we might live in his love and no redemption. And so do we thank him? Do we go to his feet every day and thank him? Go to him repenting of sin. Being, receiving that forgiveness and then falling on our faces in our living rooms, in our bedrooms and saying, thank you, Jesus. You've changed me. You've healed me. You've forgiven me. Beloved, temptation is sure to come. Transgression is when we give in to that temptation. Greater condemnation comes on those who pass sin on to others. Therefore, we must pay attention to ourselves Individually, we must admonish each other uh, communally. We must call each other to repentance and we must forgive each other as God in Christ has forgiven us. And maybe that's you. Maybe you need to trust Christ today. Know that when you do, he will be glad to receive you and forgive you. But as we do this hard work, may we look at the object of our faith 
the one that can empower us towards this beautiful redeeming love together. We do this hard work by looking at him and by planting communities all over the world that live this out for the glory of his name and the good of our neighbors and the praise of God. So let's pray and ask him for help now. Lord Jesus, we do give you praise. What joy there is seen in that Samaritan leper who went and fell at the feet. He he didn't just find that he was healed, but he went and fell at your face and gave praise to you and was thankful. Oh God, we're thankful for what you have done for us. Teach us to be people that are thankful. Teach us to be people that are vigilant. Teach us to be the kinds of people that fight for the glory of Christ in this community, that your beauty might shine forth to our neighbors and the nations. We cannot do this on our own, God. We look to you. Empower us towards this redeeming love. Empower us towards this daily thankfulness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.